The following message is brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of Crown Point Baptist Church and Pastor Mark Ermler. For those of you that were in the Sunday School Hour, we looked at the subject uh, called life again. If you were not there, it was just simply defining what revival is. Re means again, vive means life. It's a restoration to spiritual life. We discovered that that life is actually the life of Jesus. And so we want to go further with that and uh, just uh, kind of flower it as we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and what it means to access Jesus as your life and experience him in this matter of life again or what we call revival. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18, the scripture says, but we all with open face beholding as in a glass, that would be a mirror, the glory of the Lord are changed, transformed, transfigured into the same image from glory to glory, even as by, now notice, the spirit of the Lord. So it's talking about being changed to the image of Jesus through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And friends, that is the core essence, as we saw in the last hour, of what revival is on the individual or personal level. I want to speak this morning on being aglow with the indwelling Christ. Shall we pray? Lord, I pray that you'll breathe on us right now once again. Lord, may your word come alive to our hearts. Would you speak, Lord, to our inner man so that we know we're hearing from you. And I plead the blood of Jesus to protect us from the attack of the enemy who hates our focus on Jesus. And so, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are Lord and that Satan is defeated. And we claim our position in you at the throne far above all principality and power and in your name. I exercise your authority over any powers of darkness that would seek to hinder in this hour and trust you that that not be allowed. Lord Jesus, we need a fresh meeting with you. And I pray that you'd create hunger in the hearts of those who need that uh, stirring. For others who have already been hungering, Lord, uh, would you so fill them today with the food that they need. Lord, I pray that all of us would know that we've met with you. We thank you for it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Several years ago, I was preaching in the country of South Africa and up in an area of the country called Venda, which is next to the country of Mozambique. It's actually uh, uh, next to Kruger Park, which is a game park about the size of Israel or the state of Vermont. And so it's a, a massive game park on the other side of his Mozambique. And uh, people come through there all the time in an effort to get to Johannesburg in hopes of finding a job and uh, many times lose family members on the way through to the animals in that jungle. And in fact, the little village that uh, we were in and ministered to there, uh, the pastor said that one time uh, a mother came through. She said, I started with five kids and I'm the only one who made it out alive. So just kind of get this picture of this part of the world in your mind. Uh, this is out in what they call the bush, a very rural area. And uh, I remember uh, the first time I ever came into that town, we went by the open marketplace, which is the only marketplace, and bought two live chickens to drop off at the chief's house on the way into his village. Now, when we drove into Simi Valley last night, we did not drop off two live chickens with your mare. <laughs> that's not how we do it here, but that's how they do it there. You got to really try to get the picture of this in your mind. In a village like this, the majority of the people do not have electricity. It's not just that occasionally they lose it, as in many parts of the world. They don't have it, period. They just try to let that sink in. Also, they do not have plumbing. Now, in the American mindset, just imagine what it would be like not to have running water. 
Try to let that sink in. In a village like this, many of the dwelling places had an earthen floor. Some had a cement floor. We stayed at the pastor's house. He grew up in that village, was saved and called to preach and started this church. And he had a cement floor, so we slept on the floor. Nothing wrong with that. Had our blankets, slept on the floor. Got up in the morning, and uh, we're getting ready for the day. Now, the average American, when he thinks of getting ready for the day, thinks of maybe you know, taking a shower, you know, getting cleaned up. Well, there's no plumbing. <laughs> it's not going to happen. Now, outside the house, there was a barrel where somebody had hauled up some water, and they would bring in a basin full at a time into a little room in the house that was like a restroom, it wasn't. The restroom was one of those outdoor kind, but uh, it was a little room where they had a basin of water and you could kind of get cleaned up and ready for the day. Well, it was my turn. I walked into that little room and I took a little ra- look around and there was no mirror. <laughs> Ever tried to get ready without a mirror? <laughs> you know, the average American is used to looking at the mirror, at least, you know, for a few moments uh, to uh, get ready for the day. I realize some look at it longer than others. <laughs> But most take at least a quick look to make sure things are not in disarray. Well, that wasn't going to happen either. Now, I've learned in my travels to always bring my trusted little travel mirror. So I pulled out this little mirror and set it up on the windowsill. And it was cocked and it's small. But I did the best I could, combed my hair and got ready for the day. Well, a few hours later, I had the privilege of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to 500 high school students. What a joy. What a joy. Now, they didn't have any auditorium facility, nothing of the sort. We met out in an open courtyard, and these 500 teenagers stood the entire time that I preached. So I was mindful of the fact that they were standing, and I kept it on the shorter side. So if you think I'm going too long, you just stand up. And uh, (laughs) one of these days, somebody's going to do that. But uh, at any rate, I was preaching away. So the missionary was behind me, and he was trying to get some pictures. And so you have the faces of these 500 students looking up, and he's behind me, and, you know, I'm in the picture preaching away. And uh, he got the film developed. Now, I know the young people in the auditorium do do not know what that means to get film developed. (laughs) But uh, uh, for those of you that remember that, he got the film developed, and I looked at this photograph a few days later, and I saw that the hair on the back of my head was sticking straight out. (laughs) You know, my mother used to call it rooster tails. My wife calls it bedhead. (laughs) Well, whatever you want to call it, it was a bad hair day, if you know what I'm saying. And I remember looking at that picture thinking, you know, don't I have any friends? (laughs) I mean, somebody could have at least told me, well, who knows, maybe the Africans thought it was some newfangled American hairstyle. Have you ever been in a situation where you needed a mirror and you couldn't find one? Have you ever tried the back of a spoon? About all you see is your nose. <laughs> and with a, low, a Dutch nose like mine, that's a little disconcerting. Uh, I remember one time I needed a, uh, a mirror and uh, I couldn't find anything. And then I saw a metal doorknob. So when no one's looking around, I'm looking at the doorknob, <laughs> trying to catch a reflection. But it was dull, and I could not catch a clear reflection. Now, in our text this morning, we're going to see that the word glass is the concept of a mirror, and that the point of the passage is that God intends for his children to be as a mirror, where you reflect the glory of Jesus Christ. Friends, as a child of God, if you're saved, if you're not saved, you can, you can get saved this morning. You can have the life of Jesus move in, and you can be born again. But friends, when you trust Jesus, in other words, when you stop trusting yourself and stop trying to get to heaven on your own, and you recognize that that's why Jesus went to the cross, all of your sins were put on him. He died 
in your place. He paid your penalty. He suffered the separation from the Father so that you don't have to. And he rose again and conquered sin, death, and hell. And when you stop depending on yourself and you transfer that dependence to Jesus alone to actually save you, in other words, to apply that work of the cross to you once and for all, at that moment, not only are your sins forgiven and many other great truths, but the life of Jesus, his spirit, uh, brings into you the eternal life of Jesus Christ himself and you now have Jesus residing inside of you. He's in your spirit. But you know, he didn't move into your spirit to be hidden the rest of your days on earth. And when we walk selfish, self-willed, self-dependent, flesh-oriented lives, we block the glory. In a certain sense, on an individual level, we imprison the Son of God within us. Not in allowing people to see who we are. But, oh, friends, when you realize that he moved in to live his life, not yours, and you start yielding to his power to obey his will so that that life of Jesus in you is manifested through you, when that happens, you are aglow with the indwelling Jesus. That's when there's the reflection. That's what this is talking about. Now, how does it work? Well, this morning, I want to take a different approach to sermons. Uh, instead of, you know, three points in a poem, <laughs> uh, the typical homiletical approach, I'm going to do what they called 100 years ago a Bible reading. Now, it's more than just reading uh, through the text. But I want us to just look at the surrounding verses and just kind of walk through it and allow that context to shed light on our opening thought. Let's back up to verse 4 in chapter 3. It says, in such trust, that's faith, have we through Christ to God's word. So it's talking about faith in God. And then verse 5 describes faith. It doesn't define it. It describes it. It says, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything is of or from ourselves, but our sufficiency or our adequacy is of or it's from God. Now, this is one of the hardest lessons for us to learn. May I remind us, this is the Apostle Paul writing, of course, under inspiration, and he says, we are not sufficient for anything. That's hard on us. Our human ego doesn't like that. This is what stumbles many people in the whole matter of salvation, in the matter of heaven. I remember talking to a lady in Ohio, and she was trying to earn her way to heaven. The problem is the standard for heaven is God. And only God meets the standard of God. <laughs> That's why we need Jesus to move in, so God meets the standard of God. But she didn't get that. She was trying to earn her way, and I was pointing out, you know, the standard is perfection. Uh, and she says, well, you're not giving me any credit. Well, that's the point. Jesus paid it all. And so we need to trust him. And so she was stumbling over that. She was stumbling over the sufficiency of Jesus and the fact that we're not sufficient. Well, you know, the same is true in the Christian walk. Still, only God meets the standard of God. That's why we need imputed righteousness or credited righteousness in salvation and imparted righteousness in sanctification. And what happens sometimes is we finally come to grips with, okay, I can't save myself, and we understand that justification is by grace through faith in Christ alone, and then we go back to trying to get sanctified on our own effort. We come to grips with justification by faith and revert back to sanctification by self-effort human works. But it doesn't work. 
Because only God meets the standard of God. See, he moved in to live his life, not yours. And when we live ours, we find we're not sufficient. We don't meet the standard. You see, he says here that we are not sufficient. You and I cannot live a holy life. We cannot serve God in the strength of man. You cannot live the Christian life without the Christian life himself. His name is Jesus. And so the point is, we are not sufficient in our own strength, not at all. But the last phrase says, our sufficiency is of, it is from God. And so there's the answer for both justification and sanctification. And let's read on here. Verse 6, who God also hath made us able ministers. Now he's not talking about human ability. He just said we're not sufficient. But when you depend on his sufficiency, he enables us, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter. Sometimes we refer to the letter of the law, but notice this is the letter of New Testament ministry. It's even more specific. And it says here, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, friends, the Spirit here is not an attitude. It's the Holy Spirit. We'll see that here in the context. And it is only the Holy Spirit who gives life. And he's telling us that we must depend on the sufficiency of God. When we do, he enables us so that it's not just of the letter, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. In other words, the exact rendering even of New Testament ministry, much less the Old Testament law, but the exact rendering of what we call the letter Without the Spirit, this passage says it kills. That's shocking, isn't it? Have you ever wondered why Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 1.5, I came not unto you in word only, but in power and the Holy Spirit. You see, what we need is the word and the Spirit. Some emphasize the spirit and ignore the word. And eventually that gets them into trouble because uh, that leads to delusion. But others emphasize the word and minimize the spirit. That's what this passage is, uh, uh, is confronting. That leads to deadness. You see, no fire is not the answer to strange fire. What we need is the word and the spirit. That's dynamic and leads to Holy Spirit, revival, fire. So that's the emphasis here. Verse 7, but if the ministration, well, that's the word ministry, of death. Now that's an odd phrase, isn't it? If I asked you today, hey, what's your ministry? Well, you know, I'm in the ministry of death. <laughs> well, I knew a few guys like that in Chicago where I grew up. Actually, there's usually one or two of these in every church, too, in a different way. But I shouldn't go into that. Uh, what is this ministry of death? Well, notice in this context it says, but if the ministration or ministry of death written and engraven in stones. You know, that's the Ten Commandments. And the inspired text is calling it the ministry of death. How can it say that? Because Romans 7 says the law is holy and just and good. Well, it's the ministry of death because the law does not remove sin. The law reveals sin and condemns it. And so it's a ministry of condemnation. It's a ministry of death. It points out, hey, 
you don't, you don't always keep the law. So it doesn't remove our sin, it reveals our sin so that we wake up and according to Galatians recognize the answer is Jesus. But the point is the law itself then is a ministry of condemnation, it's a ministry of death. But notice it says here that it was glorious. So much so, we read on, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away. You remember when we read, when God gave the law, when he gave those ten words, the ten commandments, and uh, Moses communed with God on the mount on that one occasion when he came back down off the mount and all that was happening there, and there's a lot more to the story, but on that one occasion when he came down, his face was aglow. <laughs> it was actually radiant with a physical radiance in his case in the Old Testament economy. And you remember he put a veil over his face. Can you imagine looking at someone's face and the shine, the radiance is so bright you have to look the other way. <laughs> wow. There was a glory even to the law. But now notice the contrast. I love this. Verse 8. How shall not the ministration, the ministry of the Spirit be rather or more glorious? When Andrew Murray became the pastor on the church in the town square in Worcester, South Africa. The year was 1860. And uh, the first text that he preached on was this verse. How shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? Within weeks, that church was in a full-blown outpouring of the Spirit and went far beyond the church to the community, went far beyond the community to the region, went far beyond the region to the nation of South Africa. In fact, in our revival history books, the, uh, that revival is known as the Great Revival of 1860. I had the privilege of going to that church and, and uh, uh, going to uh, the town newspaper. They just run some articles on that revival and so forth, and I've studied it in other ways. But a fascinating move of God. The intercession that led up to that is a great story. And then when God began to move, uh, it's, uh, it's one of those glory stories. And as the revival continued, when God began to move, their services, just like, like this, we have a service right now, they rolled on. And people were not doing this. And they began to meet daily. And often they would dismiss at 3 o'clock in the morning. Now you don't have to have a service go to 3 o'clock in the morning to say you've had revival. That's a detail that is in that story. That's an incidental compared to an essential as we talked about in the Sunday school hour. But it is kind of neat, isn't it? Wouldn't it be neat to be in a service where nobody wanted to go home? Because God's presence is so real and so felt and so manifest. See, there's glory to that. And it is said that when they would go home, they would often sing their way back to their house. Can you imagine singing your way through your neighborhood at 3 a.m.? <laughs> Can you imagine singing your way through your neighborhood at 3 o'clock in the afternoon? My point is, look, they were so meeting with God, so basking in the presence of God, so thrilled with God, it didn't matter what time of the day or night it was, they sang their way home. Is not there a spiritual glory to all of this? And so you have this contrast. Now, the next few verses bring out the contrast even more. Look at what it says in verse 9. For if the ministration of condemnation, remember that's the law, death, be glory, much more. See the contrast? 
Much more doth the ministration of righteousness, there's the spirit, life, exceed, there's another contrasting word, in glory. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that excels. See, there's another contrast. Verse 11, for if that which is done away was glorious, much more, there's your contrast again, that which remains is glorious. Look, words could not say this more strongly, that though there was a glory to the ministry of the law, there is such greater glory to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It so excels. It's so much more. It so exceeds. It so eclipses. It so overshadows the former glory. It's as if the former glory had no glory by reason of the glory that far outshines it. Friends, that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And that unique ministry was launched on a whole new level on the day of Pentecost when the Lord Jesus, who had been exalted to the right hand of the Father, according to Acts 2.33, received the promise of the Holy Spirit and he sent the Spirit. And did you know the Holy Spirit has not been sent back yet? We live still in 2018 in this age of the Holy Spirit. We live in this age of grace. We live in this age of this much greater powerful ministry of the spirit of the living God who's not just outside of us, he's in us. It's an amazing provision. What a contrast. And so verse 12 says, seeing then on this basis, when you get this, seeing then that we have such hope, and that's not the word for wishful thinking. It's a word that deals with confident expectation. In other words, seeing then that we have such confidence, such provision, such help, because the helper, the comforter has come. We use, we can now use great plainness or boldness of speech. Boldness is not brashness. It's being free to say what ought to be said. Do you know when you as an individual begin to understand the power of the Spirit of Jesus who lives in you to lead you so you have a personal divine guide and to empower you and energize you for everything that God has called you to, all of it. Friends, when that sinks in, you can use great freeness of speech. You can be unashamed of Jesus. You know, when we're ashamed of Jesus, the unsaved world is unashamed of their sin. But when we are free... And unashamed of Jesus, that's when the unsaved world gets ashamed of their sin. Dale Moody, a man that they say uh, slaughtered the king's English. Didn't have that much education. I think he was brilliant otherwise, but it is true he didn't have that much formal education. And they say he slaughtered the king's English. On one occasion, he went to the king's land. Remember England? And uh, there, uh, while in the city of London, one of the great intellectual centers of the world in that day, he uh, put an ad in the paper. Can you imagine doing this? And he challenged the Atheistic League of London. It was a 5,000-member league of atheists. And he challenged them to come to such and such an auditorium on such and such a night and listen to D.L. Moody preach. Can you imagine putting an ad in the paper like that? 2,000 atheists showed up. Moody stood up on the platform and said, what hymn would you like to sing? And one of the guys yelled out, atheists don't have hymns. <laughs> so, so much for the song service. <laughs> D.L. Moody preached a gospel message. 
gave an invitation. Who will trust Jesus as their Savior? Nobody moved. It was like they were frozen in their seats. Moody said to the ushers, you may open the doors. Anybody that would like to leave, you may leave. No one left. God was at work. D.L. Moody preached a second gospel message. Gave an invitation, who will trust Christ? And one of the atheists called out and says, I can't trust Jesus Christ. Interesting words. Moody said to the ushers, you may open the doors. Anybody would like to leave, you may leave. No one left. He preached a third gospel message. Gave an invitation, who will trust Jesus? And the leader of the Atheistic League of London himself stood up and in defiance said, I won't trust Jesus Christ. And Moody pointed his finger toward that man. And he said to that audience, there's your leader. How many of you will follow him? <laughs> no one moved. No one said a word. And D.L. Moody preached a fourth gospel message. I'd have loved to have been in that service. And he gave an invitation, who will trust Jesus Christ? Using as his text, the prodigal son. And 500 atheists were no longer atheists. As they put their faith in Jesus, Moody kept preaching over the next several nights, and before it was done, 2,000 out of 5,000 were born again, converted, saved. It broke the back of the Atheistic League of London in that day. Now, fascinating. Is it not obvious that D.L. Moody understood what this text is talking about? I mean, let's stop and think about this. How could a man who did not use the English language well challenge the intellectuals of that city, 5,000-member league, to come on such and such a night and listen to him preach? Is it not obvious that Moody understood that the sufficiency was not in Dwight Lyman Moody? Is it not also under, uh, obvious that he understood that the sufficiency was in the power of the living God through the ministry of the Holy Spirit? And because he had such hope, he could use great boldness of speech. Do you get it? Now, friends, that's what you and I need as well. Now, I realize your calling and my calling may not be exactly the same as D.L. Moody. I understand that. But I'm going to tell you something. If you're a child of God, you have a place in God's kingdom work this side of heaven, and you and I cannot do it apart from the same ministry of the Holy Spirit. It is not a matter of mimicking motions and doing church. It's a matter of yielding to the power and leadership of the Spirit of Jesus in us so that His life is imparted to us and through us out to others. Let's read on. And not as Moses, verse 13, which put a veil over his face that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished, but their minds were blinded, for until this day remaineth the same veil, untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, verse 16, when it, that's their heart, shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. I find that fascinating. I think we would think it would be the other way around. The veil would be taken away so that their heart could turn to the Lord. But it's by faith. Their heart turns to the Lord. Then the veil is taken away. And the order of that is significant, especially for those who are savvy to theological controversy on the order of salvation. And I'll leave that there. Verse 17. <laughs> now the Lord is that spirit. Do you know that the Holy Spirit is Lord? Along with the Father and the Son. One God, three persons. They're all called Lord. Here the Spirit is called Lord. Now the Lord is that spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, 
there's liberty. That is where the Spirit is Lord. That is where He's yielded to as Lord. Then there's liberty. See, liberty is not the freedom to just do what we want to. Liberty is accessing Jesus. Where you're yielding to Him as Lord, trusting the Lordship of His power for the Lordship of His will, and then you access Him. And I'm going to tell you, that life is liberty. That's true holiness. That's true service. It's Him. Verse 18, but we all, not just Paul, but we all with open face, just like a little child with that open face, beholding, that's not a casual look, it's a careful look, as in a glass. Now look, it's not actually looking in a mirror, it's like, it's as looking in a glass or a mirror. And there we're told we see the glory of the Lord. And when we do, it says we're changed. That's the same word translated transformed in Romans 12 too. Transfigured in the Gospels. Remember when Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration allowed those three disciples that were with him uh, to see the manifestation of the glory of his deity, which he had set aside to come into our world. But for those few brief moments, uh, his glory shone and lit up his outer clothing, uh, the text uh, uh, informs us. Who he was was manifested. Okay, that's the same word here used of you and I. God's provision, his plan, his intention is for who you are as a child of God to be manifested. Well, who are you as a child of God? Christ in you, the hope of glory. See, God wants who you are, Christ in you, the hope of glory, to be manifested. He wants people to actually see Jesus. Still, Jesus in his glorified body sits on the throne, but he sent his spirit, bringing that very glorified life right into us. Not to be hidden, but to be seen. And friends, I'm going to tell you, it's not a physical manifestation. It's spiritual, but it's just as real as if it were physical. They see the Lord. We'll see more of this here in just a moment, but let me finish this verse. It says we're changed. When we see that, that when we see Jesus, we're touched, we're changed, we're transformed, we're transfigured into the same image. From glory to glory, there's an upward spiral this side of heaven. Even as by the Spirit of the Lord, it's all through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I realize in James, the mirror is there referring to the Word of God. And one of the great venues of seeing Jesus is through the Word of God as the Spirit opens your understanding to the truth connected to the words. It's glorious. That can be applied here, but in this context, the mirror is you. Amazing. Who do people see? Is it just us? See, there are people around you and I that are searching. Look, the reason some people do some of the strange uh, things they do in our day, they're obviously searching. Maybe along the way they hear that you call yourself a Christian, not just a Christian, a born-again Christian. And they come, and you may not know it, and I may not know it, but they're looking at you and I to see if there's any reality of Jesus. Who do they see? Is it just us, or do they see him? Ah, friends, I remember we were in Ulysses, Kansas. We're going to be there in a few weeks again. And I was at the post office. It was packed out. There were two or three uh, workers there. And one of those ladies, I'd never seen her in my life, but she was so aglow with Jesus. You know, you can recognize Jesus. 
And I was hoping that I'd get to talk to her, but somebody else helped me that day. But another day that week, I was in there again, and she's the one that helped me. I said, ma'am, are you a born-again Christian? She said, oh, yes, I am. <laughs> and I very clearly knew the Lord. I said, I, I could tell. And that's glorious. She was just a glow. Now, it wasn't physical. It was spiritual. But it was just as real as if it was physical. And like Moses, she probably didn't know it. Moses was not that his face shone. Remember some years ago when we were here in California and John Jr. was quite small. We were staying up in the prophet's chamber because I didn't want to take my fifth wheel into downtown San Francisco. Uh, there with David Ennis at Hamilton Square. And so uh, to get John Jr. out of the building, I'd uh, take him down the street and we'd go to Starbucks. And uh, there's one on like every other corner. And so uh, I had John trained in those days when I had him in my arm. I'd stick a gospel track in his hand and he would hand it to the nearest person. That got really interesting in San Francisco. <laughs> and uh, uh, there at Starbucks, you know, he'd hand it out. And we had some really neat conversations because he was the one giving it out. It really was, it was going well. So that began a new ministry for my son and I called Starbucks Evangelism. And a couple months later, we were in Cheyenne, Wyoming, and I told my wife one afternoon, I said, hey, I'm going to take John down to Starbucks over here for Starbucks evangelism. And of course, that means also for a latte. But we walked in, and the young lady that was working there looked up, smiled, and said, hello, may I help you? And immediately, involuntarily, the thought went across, through my, across my mind, she knows Jesus. She's a believer. Now, it wasn't based on what she's wearing. I don't remember what she's wearing. She's standing behind the counter. And it wasn't just that she smiled. You know, unsaved people can smile. But there was that reflection. The glow. Well, we placed our order. I put a gospel track in John's hand. He handed it to her. She goes, oh, I'm a believer in Jesus and gave a clear testimony. I already knew. You say, is that really what the text is talking about? Look at the next verse. Happens to be chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, seeing we have... This ministry. See, we, you and I, we, as we have received mercy, we faint not, and have, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. Look, when you understand the ministry of the Holy Spirit, you don't have to bow to deceitful tactics to try to get the work of God so-called done. But by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the, uh, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Now look at verse 5. For we preach, now notice, not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. Now let me ask you a question. What does it mean to preach Christ? Most of us say, well, you preach the gospel. Well, that's certainly a part of it. I learned this from my father. This is one of his favorite texts. In fact, his last few years, he preached on this text and this subject more than anything else before the Lord took him home 20 years ago. But preaching Christ is not just the right words. It's that as you preach the message of Jesus, there is that glow. There is that reflection. There is that reality of Jesus. They actually are seeing Jesus. As you preach the message, they see and hear the very Jesus of the message. That's why some people are so effective in winning people to Christ. It's because they let Jesus shine. 
And sometimes, forgive me for saying this, a person that doesn't seem like, I shouldn't say this, but um, you'll understand. A person that doesn't seem like, they have, that like they're the sharpest knife in the drawer <laughs> is effective at leading people to Christ. Why? Because they're accessing the sharpest knife in the drawer. His name is Jesus. Which means, by the way, <laughs> there's hope for all of us. Wow. You say, is that really what this is talking about? Look at verse 6. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined, here it is, in our hearts. We're the mirrors. To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, he shines in us so that people see Jesus. Why? Verse 7. But we have this treasure in earth and vessels, amazing clay mirrors. That means this is miraculous. And that is the point because the last part of verse 7 says that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. God gets the glory. I have some dear friends that some years ago went to China for three weeks and witnessed those three weeks to their atheist guide and another lady that was a part of the conversation. Toward the end of it, the atheist guide said, well, how do I know, how do we know that your Jesus just isn't your form of our Confucius? And my friend wisely said, because Jesus rose again from the dead. That's a great answer. The atheist said, how do you know? That's a great question. Now, it's really neat. In history, there's been so many infidels who've tried to disprove the resurrection of Jesus and gotten converted in the process because there's so much proof. But I love how this conversation went uh, because the, uh, the atheist guide was saying, you know, a couple weeks ago when we all met as a group, I was just kind of drawn to you two. And immediately, my friend's wife caught it and spoke up and said, oh, if you were drawn to us, there's nothing in us in and of ourselves for you to be drawn to. But Jesus lives in us. You're drawn to him. He lives in us. That's how you know he's alive. That's how you know he rose again. And she paused. And she said, I believe you. Fifteen years ago, there was another born-again Christian in my group, and the same look, and she used a Chinese character that, that means a God look, the same God look that was in her eyes, I see in your eyes. That's what this text is talking about. And friends, when we are filled with the Spirit of Jesus, people see Jesus. And I'm going to tell you, our world needs Jesus. Your neighbors, your co-workers, your, uh, uh, they're in the workplace, uh, people that you know, relatives that don't know the Lord, they need Jesus. Not just the right message. They need the person of the message. And that's what gives the message so much power. But when we are selfish and we pander to our flesh and cave into our flesh and walk in the flesh, according to Galatians 5, the works of the flesh are manifest. And Galatians 5 lists all these sins, moral sins, social sins, relationship sins, religious sins. Did you know that unsaved flesh and saved flesh looks exactly alike? Adultery looks like adultery. Strife looks like strife. Jealousy looks like jealousy. You get it? You see, when we cave into the flesh, we veil who we are and people don't see Jesus. The mirror is smeared. It's like when I was trying to catch that reflection in the doorknob and I couldn't because it was dull and there are people who need to see Jesus and they can't see him because we're so flesh-filled. It's when we need revival. That's why we have meetings like this. Allow the Spirit of God to penetrate and say, wait a second, that's flesh. That's the... It's not even hard. You go to Galatians 5, it says the works of the flesh are manifest. They're obvious. 
fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, and uh, uh, that's just unrestrained uh, living, and, and then, uh, you know, strife and jealousy and, and so forth, all that stuff. See, that's flesh. And the mirror is smeared. And not only that, it's not just when we cave into the works of the flesh, flesh indulgence, when we depend on the flesh, flesh dependence, even when we depend on our strength to try to do what's right, that's the letter without the spirit, and it kills. It still hides Jesus. Because when we're flesh dependent, trying to do the work of God, it's all about us instead of all about him. And people still don't see Jesus. But I'm going to tell you, friends, when we allow the blood of Jesus to cleanse us, when we get honest about our sins, that blood of Jesus comes running in and cleans us up every time so that we can get back to walking in the Spirit, trusting His power to obey His will, so that we are aglow with the indwelling Christ. Are we aglow with the indwelling Jesus? Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of Crown Point Baptist Church. If this message was a help to you, please feel free to share it on social media. Thanks once again for tuning in.